Good morning. Feedback there. Hey, if you're a guest, my name's Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope and glad that you're here and hope that you had a good Thanksgiving. I know it's been a hard year, but even in the midst of difficulty, we have a lot to be thankful for. First, I want to celebrate that uh, Wes and Hamilton was baptized into Christ. I think they're in this service. There's the Hamilton family generally over there. Yes, they're pretty incredible. Uh, And we celebrate just like there was a party in heaven we're celebrating as well. Uh, Also, um, this past weekend, we've had three different schools represented by members of New Hope that played for state championships in football. Um, and uh, Western Boone won their state championship game, and we congratulate them. But also one of our members who's actually here with us in this service coached his way to uh, the first state championship for Covenant Christian football. And so, Sean, congratulations, man. I'm really proud of the work you did with that team. And Sean stepped in halfway through a season and really turned an entire program around. And so we're really grateful for his influence there as well. Uh, Really good memories, topping off a really uh, hard season of hard work. So uh, this morning we're going to finish up what I would say is a year-long sermon series pretty much in the book of Acts. I know we kind of said we finished in Acts 28 last week, but this week we... uh, this week, we, I want to finish up with making some observations about the entire series, some things that I think really just stood out that were a blessing um, in my life that I want to share with you this morning. But before we get started, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump in this morning. Father, we thank you uh, for the access that we have to your word. It's not lost on us, God. What a privilege and a blessing it is to be here, to open up your word, to hear from you. And so, Father, our prayer is simple. Would you give us ears to hear what you would have to say to us uh, this morning? We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Question as we get started. Have you ever watched somebody live or read about somebody's life and thought to yourself, what is it that drives that person? And what is it that keeps them going? What is it that gives them the ability to keep pushing through? About a year and a half ago, Ryan King, our student minister, and myself, we, were, uh, we had the great privilege of attending a Bible study in the office of the vice president in Washington, D.C. And so we got to go, and there's a lot that goes with an experience like that. But the thing that stood out to me more than anything else was to sit at his desk. And I'll tell you why. As I got to sit at this desk and, and rub your hands over the surface of this desk, let me tell you why that was significant. I had just got done reading a three-part biography by a guy named Edmund Morris on, uh, on the life of Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt. And this desk that sits in the vice president's office was commissioned to be built by Roosevelt. And so for me, it was just this incredible moment because the stories of Roosevelt's life became even more real sitting at that desk. It was incredible. I don't know if you know much about him, but uh, I think uh, a lot has come out of these three, this three-part biography. Uh, you learn a lot about this guy. He averaged reading, and I want you to hear this, 400 books a year. Okay, Try that with Netflix, right? 400 books a year. He charted in his lifetime, he went down uncharted parts of the Amazon River. Never been explored, and Teddy Roosevelt led trips down uncharted parts of the Amazon River. He built a boxing ring in the White House and welcomed anybody who wanted to join him in the ring to box him. (laughs) I love that. What you learn about this guy when you study his life is this, is that Theodore Roosevelt had an insatiable desire to learn. And this is what led him on these explorations. This is what led him to uh, all these experiences and these trips that he went on. It led him to become such an avid reader. He had an insatiable desire to continue to learn. Likewise, I'm a big uh, sports fan. I've always grown up loving and appreciating sports. 
Um, and so when a documentary comes out on Michael Jordan this over during this pandemic, I for sure was going to tune in to watch it. Now, they say it's the last dance. It was about the Bulls. When a documentary on Michael Jordan comes out, no one cares about the rest of them. Uh, and, and you want to watch and see what took place. And it becomes very evident. Now, many of us who have followed his career and know much about him already knew this. But if you didn't and you'd watch this, you'd learn right away. There was this insatiable desire that drove Michael Jordan. And it was a, a desire to win at all costs. No matter what, he wanted to win. Nothing was going to stand in his way of winning. In fact, years later, you realize it cost him friendships, cost him opportunities, it's cost him a lot of money, it's cost him the, the ability not to have, like he does not have the ability to forgive people from, from disagreements that happened decades before. Because above all else, he had an insatiable desire to win. This year, we've studied through the book of Acts, and one of the things that comes out of the book of Acts is you do learn a little bit about different characters, and one of them that stands out is the Apostle Paul. You begin reading through the book of Acts, and you realize you learn quite a bit about this guy's story, and you're kind of drawn in. We talked a little bit about that last week, and it led me to want to read more of his writings again. And, you know, you've read through the New Testament numerous times, but as we've studied and preached through the book of Acts, I've wanted to read his writings more and more, and so I've read through his letters, and all of a sudden, some things pop out, and you begin to realize what it was that drove the Apostle Paul, what it was that kept him going, what it was that really influenced both small and large decisions in his life, from relationships to investments. Everything else was influenced by this thing that was driving him. The Apostle Paul was driven by a vision of heaven. There's other things, and you can make an argument for other things, but he had a vision for heaven. Let me give you three examples from our study. Do you remember in Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul comes upon a town called Philippi, when he comes into this town, it's known as a Roman province. And here's what that means. As a Roman province, it was governed by Rome, though not attached physically to it, which meant that you had all the rights and the privileges of a Roman citizenship if you lived in Philippi. And most of the people that made Philippi their home were retired Roman soldiers. And so when they retired from the Roman military, they would set up shop and, and, and live, put roots down in Philippi. So citizenship is vitally important. When Paul comes on the scene in Acts chapter 16, he realizes there's no church. He realizes there's no synagogue. And so what does he do? He plants a church. That church gets up and running when all of a sudden there is this big incident that takes place where Paul casts a demon out of a demon-possessed girl that costs the people that were overseeing her a lot of money because now she can't tell the future. And so what does Paul do? Well, Paul says, that's it. I, was, I healed her. What do they do? Well, they take him before the Roman authorities. And in this moment, Paul has a decision to make. It's a pretty important decision that would have a ripple effect. Paul can take the beating that's coming his way. The authorities were going to beat him within an inch of his life. Or Paul can consider the young Christians in the church that he had just planted and consider what they needed the most as those who were tempted to consider their citizenship in Rome above all else. And so Paul takes the beating. And it's a pretty vicious beating. He gets thrown down into a dungeon. And you wonder, why did you do that, Paul? It's because he knew that he was going to have this long-term relationship with these young Christians who were tempted to put their citizenship in an earthly town over their citizenship in heaven. So later on, when Paul would write a letter to them in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, the significance of this verse becomes more apparent. He says these words, But our citizenship is in heaven. Because of that, we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is if you are united to Jesus, 
Eternity begins now. And you live with an eternal view in your life. Your citizenship in Rome is a blessing. It sure is. But your citizenship in heaven deserves your loyalty over and above your citizenship in Rome. You remember in Acts chapter 19 when Paul comes into the city of Ephesus and Paul spends more time that we know of in Ephesus than he did in any other city that he worked as a missionary. And when you do that, a lot of things happen. You read about this in Acts chapter 19 and 20. You live with somebody that closely for that long and your life spills over into their life. These people watched Paul live. They listened to him talk. It wasn't just the big moments where he's out there preaching. They had the small conversations with him around the coffee table, sitting there enjoying conversation. They knew, does this guy have crude jokes? Does he just pretend? Is, is he who he says he is? Is he really living out what he says he's preaching? In Acts chapter 20, you begin to see the closeness of the relationship that they had. It's really incredible. As Paul weeps, and they weep. And so Paul would later on have such a soft spot in his heart for this church that was in this influential city. As the city and the temptations to let go of a heavenly vision for your life set in, Paul would write to them. And he would write to Timothy, who was pastoring the church in Ephesus at the time, and he would write these words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. But I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous one, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. But not only to me, he says, for all those who have longed for his appearing. That day is coming for all of those who have longed for his appearing. He's saying, what is it that you long for more than anything in life? That's the vision you have for your life. It's the thing you can't wait for. Is it to buy that house that you've been saving for? Is it to graduate from school and get that job that you just can't wait to have? Right? It, what is it? Is it to get married and to start a family and to live happily ever after? What is it you long for more than anything else? Paul says, man, the thing we should long for more than anything else is to be with him in eternity, to have a vision for heaven. Well, the third one comes when he writes his letter to the church at Colossae. We know the letter is Colossians, and he writes these words in chapter 3. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. When you were baptized into Christ, you became a Christian. Now set your heart on the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. See, the temptation in the town of Colossae was this. They were kind of like the spiritual golden corral. You could, you could find anything you wanted to worship in that town, right? You go in there, and it was all low quality. I don't want to hear about it, okay? You go through that buffet line, you're not healthy at the end of it, okay? And that's what Colossae was like as a town. You could find anything. They, in fact, if you can read about this in history, they had a temple to a sewer god. Picture what worship was like in that temple, okay? Pretty horrible, right? It's not the best place to be. Think about it this way. The Christians in Colossae were tempted to have a Jesus and mentality, right? They didn't discard Jesus. In fact, Paul in chapter 2 of Colossians will call their faith firm. They had faith in Jesus, but they just thought you had to add stuff to it. And so Paul reminds them, he says, no, 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 you have your mind set on things that are here on earth. You're not thinking with an eternal perspective here. Instead, have a heavenly perspective. Keep your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of earth. C.S. Lewis, I think, said it best. He said this, keep your mind on heaven, and you get earth thrown in. But you keep your mind on earth, you get neither. What he's saying, if you have a heavenly perspective, your life on earth has purpose. 
Every decision you make has an eternal consequence. Everything you invest in goes into eternity. There's a ripple effect for everything that you're a part of because you're focused on heaven. That's the vision. That's the goal. But if all you do is focus on your comforts and what you want here on earth, you don't get either one of them. You don't get either one of them. See, focusing on the city, or the heaven, that is to come, prevents us from being captivated by the temporary attractions of the present world. Look, this line of thinking wasn't unique just to Paul. Jesus is known uh, constantly telling his disciples to have a vision of heaven in your mind. Be heaven-minded. Focus on heaven. Make decisions based on where you're headed. Understand your life on this earth is just a blip, and then you spend the rest of eternity somewhere. Everyone's going to spend eternity somewhere. And he says, when you are a follower of Jesus, you should be focused on your citizenship in heaven, knowing that, hey, everything I do has eternal consequences. See, Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 16. Luke, the same one that wrote Acts, wrote a gospel detailing the life of Jesus. And in chapter 16, Jesus tells this story of an accounts manager who worked for a really rich man. And this really rich guy gives him his two-week notice. He says, hey, you're done in two weeks. So he's like, I got two weeks. What am I supposed to do now? I'm a little too old to start a new career. I'm used to drinking $5 Starbucks drinks. I'm not going back to Folgers. I need to figure something out. And so what does he do? Well, he calls all of the people that owed his boss money. And the conversations went like this. Hey, you owe my boss $100,000. Here's the deal. I'll settle for twenty-five grand. You write a $25,000 check right now. I'll forgive $75,000. I'll give you a debt-satisfied certificate. You'll be on your way. And he, was, he had two more weeks of authority, so he could do this, right? And that's what he did. And then he would follow up the conversation. He would say this. He'd say, hey, but don't forget who did this for you. Don't forget, because in two weeks, I'm going to need some help. <laughs> and so don't forget who did it. And then Jesus says these words. Jesus says, what a wise steward. What a wise steward. He used an opportunity he knew was coming to an end to prepare for the future, to make friends for his new beginning. That's how you should view your money in regard to eternity. And I'm thinking to myself, what? Jesus, that's shady. Jesus taught that story. But the second thing is this, and I hope you don't miss this. If you know that your time and your current reality is coming to an end pretty quickly, isn't it wise to use these precious few moments to prepare for the coming reality, the permanent one? Let me say that again. If you know that your time is currently coming, that you're currently experiencing, is coming to an end, isn't it wise for you to invest in the permanent reality that you're going to walk into at the end of this temporary one? In fact, isn't it just outright foolish to do otherwise? Picture it this way. Let's say I was staying at the Holiday Inn that's right up the road here. And I, go, I come, and I'm visiting. I come in, I go to the holiday, and I go into the room, and I realize, man, I'm, I'm not too pleased with this room. I'm going to invest a little bit. I'm going to put granite countertops in this holiday in room. And, I'm, man, I'm going to get the nicest sleep number bed, and I'm going to put these big old windows here, and I want a hot tub in the holiday. I want a hot tub. I'm going to invest, and I just start pouring money into my holiday in hotel room. You'd be thinking, what's wrong with you? In fact, the hotel manager would probably come and say, look, I appreciate the upgrades. But why in the world would you invest so much money in upgrading a place that you're only going to be living in for a temporary amount of time? Is that not the same thing we do? We work so hard to build so much comfort in a place that we're going to live just for a little bit of time. We put all of our energy, all of our vision, all of our dreaming into the short years we get to live in this life without a vision for what's coming. And the Bible's clear. Everyone's going to live forever somewhere. And that's the place you need to invest in because everything you invest here is temporary. It will end. But everything you invest there goes on forever. Have you ever thought about that? What that's going to be like? Have you ever thought about what it's going to be like the day that you go to heaven? 
the day that you die and go to heaven? My family was on vacation a month ago. And we, when we go on vacation, we like to visit a church because we honestly, one of the goals is we, well, and we just love being in church, but two, we want to teach our kids you don't vacation from the gathering. Like, it's because we're on vacation, we go to church. And so we would go and visit a church. And at this particular church a month ago, the preacher uh, preached a sermon on heaven, and he used an illustration that I'm going to tailor to our purposes today, okay? But I owe him a debt because it gave me, and now it's from his imagination, so I don't want any emails. Well, I, the Bible doesn't say. It's from his imagination, okay? But what it did for me is I sat back that day. In fact, the, the ride home for me was just thinking about what heaven's going to be like. And my hope is that this illustration will give you a vision for the place that we're headed to that would influence the way you're living right now, okay? Now, let me start out this way. I want to ask you, do you wonder, or imagine with me, what Ryan King is going to look like when he's 95 years old? That's 61 years from now, okay, Ryan? Now, this is what Ryan thinks he's going to look like at 95 years old, okay? That's not the reality Ryan's going to walk into, okay? Now imagine Ryan, 95-year-old Ryan, sitting in a rocking chair, right, out on a porch at the New Hope Retirement Village that we'll have, okay? Everybody, he and Catherine are going to retire there at the New Hope Retirement Village. And he's going to be sitting there on a rocking, on one of those perfectly cool, crisp Indiana fall mornings, right? Just perfect. It's beautiful. He's going to be sitting on a rocking chair, and he's going to be taking jabs at Ben Faust, because Ben's going to be, you know, smoking some more red meat, and everyone's going to be wondering, how's that guy still alive, right? Uh, he's taking jabs at Ben, right? And he's going to be laughing and having a good time, when all of a sudden, he's going to get real quiet. He's going to tense up. He's going to grab his chest. You know, grab that rocking chair. He'll get real quiet, real calm. And there'll be commotion all around. Phone calls, people running, trying to call 911, get the ambulance there. And by the ambulance, when the ambulance actually gets there, they're going to realize they were too late. Ryan's gone. Everyone's going to think Ryan's gone, but, but that's not what Ryan's going to experience. Ryan's going to find himself suddenly awake and alert in a new place. Imagine he's going to be laying down on his stomach and he's going to open his eyes and realize he's in a field of grass that is greener than anything he's ever seen in his entire life. And he'll kind of gaze up from laying in that field and he's going to see a blue sky that is so crisp and clear and he's going to notice that everything around him is perfectly lit. The air is crisper and cleaner as he breathes it in than any of the Indiana air he'd ever breathed in his life before. And then he's going to jump to his feet, and he'll be surprised by that because he hasn't jumped anywhere in a long time. He'll take a look around, and he's going to notice a beautiful creek off to the side. And he's going to start to make his way over to that creek, but it's going to dawn on him as he begins to move that he hasn't felt this kind of balance in decades. He can't remember the last time he was walking this fast without, without a cane or without pain, but he's not feeling any pain now. He'll make his way over to that creek and he'll cup his hands and he'll drink some of the most clear and, and tasteful water that he's ever had. It'll be sweeter than any of the water that he or Catherine had ever had in all the national parks they traveled throughout their married life. He'll look down and he'll see his reflection in the water. And he'll notice that he looks strangely different 
I mean, he looks exactly like himself, only younger, only stronger, wilder, somehow different. Then he'll look off in the distance and see a city. In that moment, he'll just know that's where I'm supposed to go. It'll captivate him. The city's going to draw him in. So he'll get going, he'll start walking, and he'll start feeling, man, this is feeling better than ever. I think I might be able to pick up the pace. I might actually be able to jog as he's making his way to this city, and he's going to start laughing with all kinds of joy because he hasn't jogged anywhere in a really long time. He doesn't feel stiff and doesn't feel pain. He thinks, man, at my age, I can't believe I feel this good moving. Before, before long, he'll pick up the pace. He'll start running and thinking, man, I think I can make it to the city before sundown, not realizing that there is no sundown here. There's beautiful sunrises, beautiful sunsets. But this place is lit by a source far more powerful than the sun. As he makes his way getting closer, he's going to decide to start running. Before long, this old man is charging hard, and he's not getting tired at all. The harder he runs, the stronger he feels, so he just keeps running and thinking, I haven't felt this good since my days as a missionary in Haiti where I would go on these long runs. I haven't felt good running like this in forever. And then he arrives to the city, and it completely takes in all of his view. It's like it expands from horizon to horizon, and he can't take it all in. And he thinks to himself, I'm going to go for the middle entrance. There's multiple doors. I'm going right for the middle. And as he draws closer, he hears what he thinks is thunder. But as he gets closer to the entrance, he realizes it's laughter. The kind of laughter that you hear when people are around a table remembering the good times that they shared together. That real deep, rich, holy laughter. Then he'll look up trying to find a familiar face and he'll notice there's somebody coming right toward him. Walking right in his direction with their arms open wide. You know who it is? It's me. Who do you think it is? (laughs) I'm asking special permission to to greet every New Hope member when they get to the gates of heaven. I want to be the first person to greet you. And I'll walk right up to Ryan. I'm going to give him a big hug. And he'll look over my shoulder and he'll say, this is heaven, right? I'll say, oh, yeah, man. This is heaven. Welcome home. Welcome home. We'll turn and we'll walk in and we'll walk down a ridiculously busy, joyful street. And as we're walking down the street, he'll look off to the side and he'll see these two really big, dark-skinned men. And he'll say, who are those guys? I'll say, oh, man, that's Noah and Moses. And they're surrounded by all kinds of people. What are all these brainiac people surrounding them? I said, look, man, every time an engineer or an architect dies and comes to heaven, the first thing they want to do is talk to Moses and talk to Noah. How'd you build the ark? How did it work? And what about the pyramids, Noah or Moses? And what about the Red Sea? How'd that really work? And man, they act like they don't like it, but they just love it being bombarded with those questions. We'll keep walking. We'll start to smell the fresh baked bread, the garlic in the air. And he'll look over and he'll see a A breakfast shop, a bagel shop, serving New York-style bagels. No arguments. They win. And he'll be over there, and it'll be, you'll smell it. He'll say, man, what's the crowd around? I said, man, that's where the Apostle Paul eats breakfast every morning. As a matter of fact, David Bourne, my father-in-law, is in there right now talking theology with Paul. They do this all the time. They're going to be there all day talking about (laughs) theology. All day they do this. They have a good meal, and they just don't stop talking. It goes all day long. Look over, and we'll see it alley leading to a grass field. I said, what's going on over there? See this fierce, fun-looking man teaching all these little kids how to shoot an arrow. I said, oh, that's King David. Ryan, do you remember King David lost a son when he was on earth? So he, he greets all the aborted babies 
Every single one of them. And he says, I want to give them the life and the experience that they were denied on earth. And he teaches them how to shoot an arrow and a sling and write music and play instruments. And they just have all kinds of fun. He's got a whole team of people just want to love on these kids because they were denied something on earth, but not here. They may not have been wanted on earth, but they are here. And we'll turn and continue walking on our tour. And he'll have all kinds of people running up to him. He'll see church people from church history, and he'll see people from all of history, and he'll start asking questions and talking. And then all of a sudden, these friends and family members are going to come running up and talking to him, and they're going to be sharing memories and hugging and laughing. And it's going to be incredible because I'll sit back because there's no sense of time. We're not in a rush. Time doesn't pass there like it does here. And they'll just share the memories and they'll just laugh and they'll just have the time of their life. It'll be so good. Then they'll have people from Spain and Haiti and Costa Rica and Poland come running up to them and India. And they'll come running up and they'll say, hey, hey, you were at New Hope, weren't you? Yeah. They'll say, yeah. You're Ryan. You were at New Hope, right? Yeah. Oh, man, your church was so dedicated to missions. I can't. You're so generous, and you guys would go on trips, and you would invest in them, and you gave your time and your money, and you invested. And because of the ministry of the church that you served at, I get to be here. I'm here because of that. Thank you. Thank you. At that point, I'll redirect them a little bit. And it'll dawn on Ryan in that moment that we haven't just been casually walking around heaven. We're headed somewhere. He's got an appointment with someone important. We'll turn the corner, walk through a big doorway. We'll see this columned hallway, this garden, this beautiful garden at the end. And there he'll be. And he'll stand up. And he'll turn toward us. And Ryan will find himself in that moment looking into the face of someone who appears old and young at the same time. He'll find himself looking into the eyes of somebody who looks serious and playful all at once. Then he'll look down and he'll see the only man-made things in all of heaven. The scars. The scars on his hands and feet. And he'll realize in that moment he's in the presence of the Lord Jesus and he'll do what everybody who stands in the presence of Jesus does, he'll fall to his knees. Say, oh, Lord, my Lord. I just imagine, just like in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus picking Ryan up and looking at him and giving him a big old bear hug, the kind of hug that a father gives to a son or a daughter that they're just so proud of. The kind of hug, this fierce, intense hug that a father gives to a son who's just returned from a mission. And he'll pull him away and he'll look at him right in his eyes and he'll say, Ryan, Good job, son. You were faithful to me. You weren't ashamed of me. You invested. You were faithful to me when you had a lot, and you were faithful to me when you had a little bit. You loved me. You were faithful to me. You loved Catherine for me. You loved Conrad and Remy and Eris for me. Well done. Welcome home. At that moment, we'll turn, and that appointment will come to an end, and we'll walk. But there won't be much talking. Because Ryan's going to be resonating. It's going to hit him in that moment that a long time ago, he made a decision that had a far bigger impact than he ever thought in the moment. See, friends, that won't be 
the end of the story. That won't even be the end of the beginning. It might be the beginning of the, of the rest of the story. If the Apostle Paul were to write to us today, what do you think he'd say? I mean, really. And I think to the non-Christians, he might tell you, how's it working out for you? How are those investments in temporary things paying off? You ever feel like you're just upgrading a holiday in room? Because there's an invitation for a better vision for your life, a better future for your life. But please hear this. Please hear this. You don't have an invitation to heaven unless you accept the one that Jesus offered you. You don't. The Bible's clear that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You know what that means? That our poor decision-making has earned us an invitation to hell and eternity separated from him. But Jesus came and he lived the life that you couldn't live and he died the death that you deserved. And he defeated that death by resurrecting from the dead and he's extended an invitation to you to join him in eternity to have a bigger vision for your life. And if you're ready to make that decision to be baptized into Christ, to be raised to a new life and live with an eternal perspective, I would love to talk to you today. Think to the Christians he might write something too. He would remind us that this world is a lot of fun. It is very enticing. That sin is enjoyable. That's the hardest part of it. One preacher said, if sin's not fun, you're not doing it right. He'd say, hey, there's a problem here though. As the world clouds out your eternal vision, you'll find yourself investing in temporary things that don't last. He would remind us, keep your mind set on the things above not on earthly things. Focus where Jesus is. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Keep a vision for heaven and live your life with that kind of drive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope of heaven. And God, my prayer this morning is that if there is anybody here today who has not made that decision, who just feels like they're just spinning the wheels, that their decisions aren't having the impact they had hoped, that all the goals that they set are coming up empty. Father, I pray that as you've worked through your word being preached and, and sung and, and through the interaction with other believers, they may have the courage to step out today and make a decision to start living a new life. And Father, for many of us, we just need to realign our hearts with a vision for heaven. And so for these next few moments of response, those of us that walk with Jesus, would you just give us a fresh perspective on heaven? We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.